Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at United Nations Capital Development Lab. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we are invited to be speaking with UNCDF's new Executive Secretary, Preeti Sinha. Preeti, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Esther. I would say it's a privilege and I'm really humbled to be coming into this role. And I feel it's time uh, in this COVID era for the multilateral agencies like the UN and UNCDF to really take on a a new role, a greater role, and to work with our member countries uh, going forward. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Look forward to the discussions. Well, please tell us about your background, Preeti. What led you to this role as Executive Secretary of UNCDF? So Esther, let me start by some origins to just convey a few important things in my life. First, I had great parents. So I was born in India. I had a sort of a little cross-cultural mix of uh, parents. Father was Hindu, mother was Parsi. So I feel just for children, I want to make the point, for children, having a safety and security of childhood is very important. So I was uh, lucky to have that. And also my parents focused on uh, gender, and the education. So I had freedom to study and have education. So those two points for early childhood. And then at the age of 18, I came from India to United States on a scholarship to study at Dartmouth College. And again, this for me was a step positive for globalization that based on academics, you could transfer across the world and travel. So largely from the age of 18, I've been crisscrossing the developed and developing worlds. So to answer your question, probably that aspect of going back and forth, you know, one day in the hills of Hanover, New Hampshire, one day on the streets of Mumbai. Um, Sometimes uh, I ended up then on Wall Street later on and Wall Street and, you know, the money that you saw and that moved on Wall Street. And also you saw the lives in uh, developing countries. So what brought me to this role is largely the inequality in the world and the failure in some ways of achieving basic standards of living for all. So what I wanted to do was to be in a role with capital, which was I felt was my background, my experience, and to bring capital to enable basic standards of living for all. And I didn't see or believe particularly it had to be any one particular entity's responsibility. I feel it's whole of humanity's responsibility. So that's why I'm here at CDF. Hopefully we can achieve that. And the distance that you're talking about traveling is quite great between Mumbai and say New Hampshire or Wall Street and a least developed country. So what were the skills or uh, characteristics that helped you make those transitions? Because those are quite different in scale and scope and attitude. As to the first uh, reference letter I got um, from one of my early jobs at the World Bank had the word empathy. She, you know, a great mentor said I had empathy and I actually had to look up that word. And uh, so I guess something, it was just internal, perhaps came from, again, having a secure childhood and just seeing the world um, from the lenses of a developing and developed person in some ways in the countries that I've been through. So the skills I wanted to bring was to mobilize large pools of capital to do good with return, right? So you saw large pools of capital on Wall Street. 
you saw lives that needed to be improved and you just wondered what could be ways in which it made sense for both sides. So therefore, you know, this whole, and this was, remember now, more than 30 years ago, but that origins of the impact investing world, I guess, started in that time that it should be a win-win for both sides. And something I'd like to come towards uh, the end would be this now positive and negative externalities that we need to measure. So capital now needs to perform a different function. The purpose of capital needs to be different. We can get into some depth on that. I think this empathy issue is quite key. I mean, I know from my time living in South Africa that there was often a concern from poorer countries. They're looking at the wealthy countries saying, you have so much, why wouldn't you share? And then from my time at the United Nations, you know, you see that developed countries feel that there are kind of unceasing needs and just asks on them all the time. So what can we do as a UN entity uh, using finance to meet some of those needs to bridge those gaps and try to get more understanding from each side of this divide? So one of the key roles, I believe, is that of the social entrepreneurs. You know, I really believe in social enterprises, call them SMEs, uh, but SMEs with an impact purpose like providing water, clean drinking water, or better education. Um, So I felt social enterprises was a nexus between the the developing worlds, where it made sense to invest in such companies, which had this impact. So you had, you had both financial returns for the donors, investors, you know, the developed world, the markets, but you also had the impact. So I would like to see these companies grow in scale. And I think that becomes a bridge between the two worlds. Obviously, I'd also like to see governance, priorities, you know, a well definition of the role of development. So when we also find people from the developing world who are you know, on the global stage, we should try to get them into the development framework because they can represent their countries well. You know, they understand the mindset. And therefore, um, something very key for me is to see people from the developing world enter into these discussions with us, whether they, you know, join us in the UN or they are uh, partners in uh, something like our global investors for sustainable development. But to understand the mindset of the development and developing countries is very important. So we need to identify people who can do that, who've lived there, worked there, born there. Those would be important. Absolutely. And I know one of the uh, benefits that some of our donor countries to UNCDF cite for our work is that we bring LDC representatives to the table. That so many of these discussions about financing or development assistance are done for poor countries, but not necessarily with them. And so UNCDF, as an agency that represents the least developed countries, make sure that they are always at the table. And that's something that you've been saying, right, that we have to make sure we save a seat for our constituents. Absolutely. I think I was telling the team, uh, I believe as uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos has a seat uh, always at a meeting for the customer, given his uh, focus on the customers. Therefore, we will always have a seat in our meetings for the LDC uh, person, uh, you know, the people of the LDCs. So we'll always keep an empty chair in our meetings for that purpose so that it reminds us uh, of our mission. So I'd like to go back to an 18-year-old Preeti coming from India and showing up in New Hampshire at a small school there. What was that like in terms of cultural shift and adjusting? I would say I had a very warm uh, welcome 
And the school had started this as a diversity program. They wanted international diversity. So for a class of 1,000 students of Dartmouth, they wanted 50 students to be international. And they'd set up an international students affairs um, office. I would say um, I've been fortunate. Uh, my experience with the United States has been one of great generosity. I saw people inviting foreign students home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I would uh, say I also appreciated uh, perhaps uh, the innovative mindset. Let me here say a big difference I saw in the education frameworks and that relates to development. So in India or in developing countries, they're very much focused on the technical skills because we still need to build our infrastructure, our bridges. In the United States or perhaps where infrastructure is developed, the, the mindset is more of questioning the basis of the discussion. So here the discussion would be why is it a cosine or a tangent you know, in geometry, whereas um, let's say in a more developing world you're trying to solve the construction of the bridge so you know you know the methodology and you go ahead with it um so i would say i had a great experience i also got exposed to nature dartmouth was set in in the green mountains and we had an outing club so love for nature started early there and it was a great launching pad i got to work in an investment bank and at the world bank during my time there and it helped shape i guess the path that led here and thank you for highlighting, Preeti, that, you know, maybe this hasn't been in the news so much in the last few years, but that the United States really is very welcoming to millions and millions of immigrants, including my parents, and that the whole story of the United States is different waves of people coming from different parts of the world and becoming American and then changing what that mixture looks like by bringing their own language, culture, food to enrich the core identity of what we have here in America. So what led you to Wall Street? I was going to be a computer science major. I was going to be an engineer. And that was the track I was at at Dartmouth. I took one course in economics and I was also working at the career development office and saw an opportunity to work at JP Morgan. And that's what took me to Wall Street. You were in the mergers and acquisitions. And again, if you had a sort of a social empathy, conscience, you tried to do those financial transactions to the best of the interest of the people involved, the human interest. And uh, I got into JP Morgan. I would also say I appreciate the culture I saw in some of the firms. There was a deep culture while doing financial transactions. And uh, that led to Wall Street. And before joining Wall Street fully, so I joined Lehman Brothers for a second sort of stint in, in investment banking. I was always in mergers and acquisitions. I like the longer strategic thinking I spent one year on the sales and trading floor, which was the fast uh, moving, you know, immediate decision making system. So I would say that Wall Street has a lot of power. They are the guardians of capital. Uh, there is a lot of capital. As you know, if we look at this 400 trillion of private capital, asset managers and pension funds and banks um, guard a lot of that. And what we're trying to do with CDF, with uh, GISD, as I mentioned, the Global Investors for Sustainable Development, we want to bring that capital to improve lives, to invest in improving lives with returns so that it makes sense for both sides. And I'm sure you've seen this in your career, Preeti. 
on Wall Street is that there did seem to be quite a disconnect when you were talking to kind of people who were running money and looking to make a return on the money, especially in the 80s and 90s. And then people who were talking about poverty eradication, there was really not much overlap in that discussion. But recently, it seems like those two fields have come closer together. So I wonder if you could talk about how you've seen that evolution in your career. I was at, in Wall Street in the early 90s. And uh, one of the uh, references I got again when I was leaving was, we see you in banking, but at the World Bank in the future. I guess I was raising the issue of poverty within the you know, Wall Street environment even then in mid-90s. And you're right, I would say um, the thinking has evolved. And now we have several good friends and colleagues in the industry, in the Wall Street setup, in other hedge funds and uh, other funds, private equity funds. What I'd like to bring to the table with the COVID impact that we saw and let's say air pollution that we see in several cities, these are the negative externalities that I was talking about. They cut across everybody. So you can't be ensconced in a particular you know, luxurious house and not suffer these consequences. Therefore, I think as whole of humanity, I'd like to use that word, whole of humanity, that we need to make whole of the world a better place. And that is being evident by several of the changes of strategy, of course, what we institutions like BlackRock, Blackstone talk about, and also the generations. I think today I saw something on Amazon that said there was a climate certificate attached to that product. And it made me much more interested to buy that product. And hopefully the background of it creates some positive impact. So as you know, and we all know that uh, people are getting more conscious, um, maybe our children are making us more conscious. But I see, I do see a money um, moving towards, again, both for the planet and for people doing good with returns. Now, the interesting thing I would like to point out, the returns, again, could be financial, but if you put a value, let's say, to biodiversity, for example, so for instance, black rhinos, the 2000 black rhinos, if we don't invest in that, they will not be there for our grandchildren. So that kind of thinking is something I'd like to bring to the table as well in the capital markets. And this is really quite overdue, isn't it? Because the way investing has been done in the past has been to leave out all those externalities in terms of impacts on nature, impacts on people, impacts on health, and just focus on the money earned by whatever the investment is. But if we had a more holistic accounting of cost and benefit, of directions of certain types of investment, then people would get a much broader picture of actually what is the cost and benefit of, you know, digging another oil well versus building a wind farm. And this is work that I think, you know, Sir Ronald Cohen um, and his group are really leading in terms of trying to factor in the economic cost of certain types of investments and then have investors consider that with the profit and loss statement. Absolutely. And therefore, this year, as you know, the World Economic Forum has called it the Great Reset 2021. I think the COVID, again, cutting across all humanity, brings this to the surface. So I think we need, imagining as equity analysts in banks, maybe we need a group of quantitative, uh, let's say for the rhinos case, quantitative zoologists to you know, value that investment and what would it take to preserve that life. And um, there has been a rhino bond of 50 million issued in the capital markets uh, earlier in 2020. It's, it is a social impact bond structure. As you may also know it was originally championed by Sir Ronald Cohen. But I'd like to, this to evolve such bonds into a total market-based instrument. This one still has a sort of a payment by an outcomes payer. 
And that's where I'd like to see capital markets in one or two years, in either 2021, if we could get something off the ground with our um, colleagues at GISD and others around the globe. But I certainly would like to see our capital markets look very different and value a lot of planet and people. I'd like to see uh, LDC countries come to the market and see wholesome, you know, meaningful investment headed into those countries. And I think what's exciting with the timing that, that you're coming to UNCDF, Preeti, with all these interesting new ideas is that we're seeing a lot of interest in this type of new creative mechanism. So the idea of, for example, a mangrove fund that would pay cities around the world to protect their mangroves for the environmental benefit, but also the economic benefit. I think people are really getting very creative about how do you use kind of the basic building blocks of finance to structure investment vehicles or products or structure projects, and then applying these new indicators, new indexes, new ways of thinking of value. Yes. There's a carrot and a stick in this. So the stick is regulation. If you regulate, let's say, climate issues or carbon emissions, companies, individuals, private wealth has to adapt to the regulation. So that's one way of reaching it. The carrot is, of course, you know, interest in nature, having better surroundings, better quality of life, and that driving financial decisions as well. And again, I do feel there is a um, group that needs to do this quantitative analysis to make it as viable a financial product as currently we may do investing in companies. Absolutely. And we hear that a lot from the financial sector. And the GISD had one whole working group working on kind of structures and indices to say, what is the standard that everyone can adopt and then start valuing these investments in the same way with the same rigor that traditional financial investments have been valued? So I think we can tell Preeti kind of this motivation that was driving you throughout your career to use financial skills to help people. When you went to Yale for business school, you were one of the few people coming from a straight finance background, and then you're surrounded by people who'd come from NGOs. What was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. It was the school for me. I'm so happy that I went there. So it was, first of all, it was a class of 200 students, not more than that. And what Yale did was have no grades other than a sort of a proficient pass and fail. So we had very high GMAT scores coming in, so they took a selective approach. But once you got in, they wanted you to work together and benefit and bounce off of, you know, the 200 students. So I thought it was a very mutually reinforcing culture. Also, Yale as a university has a public service underlying theme, uh, you know, the law school as well. So to be at uh, Yale SOM, School of Management, was a great delight for me. It was my niche. I was really happy. It had um, social entrepreneurship as courses, and now it continues to do that. So now Yale SOM has moved into a nice new building on the campus. It continues to have these social entrepreneur courses, and they take the classes to countries like India as well. So I, I tend to remain in touch. Just got a message this morning from the Dean of Alumni Affairs, and uh, we look to engage uh, this oncoming group of students, you know, from Yale or from other universities to maybe work with us in some of our projects on issues regarding the LDCs and uh, would be a mutually, uh, you know, win-win situation for both sides. We would get some great, bright ideas and uh, they would get some exposure to the kind of work we do. So Yale was fantastic and the right school for me. 
And for students who are interested in working with UNCDF, we have internship calls that are open year round. So please go on to our website at www.uncdf.org and look for those internship posts. We'd be happy to assess your evaluation. So Preeti, you worked at the African Development Bank and the World Bank. From those experiences, how would you say development finance is working or the development finance architecture is working to accomplish this goal of moving more resources to the countries where they could be most used, but where private capital is not going on its own? I would say I was very attracted by the mission-driven feeling at both those institutions, and which is the same at the UN. So the UN, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, these have wonderful mission-driven, values-driven culture. So it's a great privilege to be there. I felt very much aligned to those missions. And in terms of the World Bank and the African Development Bank, they also hold a large amount of capital. You know, they are, when you look at the structure of the MDBs, there's a paid-in capital, then there's the authorized capital and callable capital. So basically, they're AAA institutions, and they can raise vast amount of funding on the back, on the back of that. The teams in the, both these institutions are great. I think we would uh, need some champions of private sector development, either on all of such institutions and across all institutions, that can perhaps move the agenda towards engaging with the private sector. So traditionally, as you know, we have our wonderful partners and donors, and they are the ones who've been sort of holding and pushing forward the mantle of development and the whole OTA, the $150 billion a year. Now we need to partner with them and bring that earlier money that we spoke about to the table, to the same table as the donors and investors. So the banks, what I worked with them was on innovative financing instruments. And we tried to do a lot of guarantees. So when you do the guarantees, then the private capital that pretty much defines its needs for risk mitigation and returns kind of comes in. So one of the roles for the MDBs as they grow is creating risk mitigation vehicles, basically guarantees where private capital can flow in. That along, those were the precursors to what is now blended finance as well. So blended finance, taking a first loss. I think that would encourage and really align with the mindset of both sides. So just to say, it's the World Economic Forum as well. And the work there was to this point. It was called the Financing for Development Initiative. It was with the UNFFD office. And it was supported by the Swiss Development Corporation Agency. And we brought uh, the heads of five multilaterals into a room with the heads of five investment banks. And we tried to have this discussion and to structure products that would allow the Morgan Stanley's, uh, Merrill Lynch's at that time, the capital that was in those banks to invest in the countries for development that the MDBs and the World Bank, African Bank, Asian Bank were working in. So it's been a, um, a journey. And I think we are at a great point right now, especially uh, the 2021. So maybe looking at it at a very positive lens to go ahead with that journey that, let's say, for me, it started in 2005 uh, when we started these discussions. And I'd love to pick up on that idea, Preeti. Were there investments that were done? Was that initiative successful? Because we know that you know, banks have so many uh, potential reasons to say no to investing in developing countries. And it'd be fascinating to hear if that W 
World Economic Forum effort really led to investments and if they've continued after the MDBs are no longer participating? So to describe the journey then, yes, I would say the private capital said, we are not going to that country unless you make it a single A credit with your guarantee, addressed to the MDBs, which, um, you know, the, the challenge for the MDBs was member countries asked them for loans versus guarantees. And also we proposed in our sort of report of the forum that the guarantees be charged at a lesser credit charge than a loan. So 25%. So that the balance sheet of the MDBs would remain freer to do more. That is evolving. That discussion continues with OECD um, as well, entering into that discussion. Because after the forum, I went down to the African Development Bank. And again, when I talk about champions, um, so we had uh, somebody as Tim Turner, um, head of um, the private sector department there. And when we did the replenishment, for example, I was part of the replenishment for ADF 13, we created a private sector facility, PSF, in which the bank sort of gave a guarantee to leverage a lot more money into the LDCs, into fragile states. So the bank did create a lot of partial credit guarantees, partial risk guarantees, and then this particular PSF, which is a private sector facility, to help mobilize more capital. The number, just to give you a sense, about 165 million as a starting facility, you know, that could back between 500 million to a billion dollars investing into those countries. So I think uh, the journey is continuing. I believe uh, IDA has a private sector window as well, which it started and um, has been partnering with IFC to maybe create some of these instruments. I see this as the way forward and hope to see more of it. We hope so too, because we know the MDBs are in a tough position, right? They are funded by member states. They are required to keep their credit ratings. And yet member states and then other actors in the UN system like us are asking them to take more risk and move farther down the chain of where the investment could come to have the most development impact. So we'll look forward to your experience as we try to expand that field further. Um, So as we look ahead, Preeti, you've been on the job for one whole week. What are your thoughts and what do you see as the big challenges and opportunities for UNCDF and for this space going forward? So first, I would like to say I'm also coming in as the UN finished 75 years. So I was very encouraged. I like the concept of crowdsourcing and listening from we the people. We the people is a very important group of stakeholders and almost merits a sort of a separate chair in there. So coming in at that stage, I see that the UN is increasing, even maybe pivoting, looking at financing that can be of assistance to its member countries. Further, you know, it's done a lot and it's doing more, especially given the COVID challenges. So I'm encouraged by this collective human spirit, which I think the UN emphasizes and embolizes, and to then discuss the purpose of capital. I would like to have some discussions on that. And in that context, we could encourage both public and private finance to do more. Leaving no one behind, you know, the same equates for me was the basic standard of living. So that mission remains open to me. And having a whole-of-world approach, whole-of-world approach, again, you know, recognizing those negative externalities can cut across boundaries and borders, and a whole of humanity, so that we take care of every, every citizen, you know, in the world. So in that context, that's where I look at this 
mission, the UN cradles the mission of development. You know, we are part of the UNDP family, which has this mandate of development. So I'm coming in and looking at how we can serve the needs of our member countries better. I would like to engage with them on their priorities. So I really see it as a partnership and see where their priorities lie. They may differ across countries, right? So having gauged that, then to structure the financing according to and around those priorities. And my one week, week one at CDF, has been wonderful. I've been too very impressed by the colleagues there, the work that we are doing, and maybe here allude to the work uh, that we are doing in inclusive digital economies. And this is uh, very much aligned you know, to the Secretary General's vision on digital finance, to UNDPs and other this joint task force um, that we've done in the past. And taking that into account, the digital divide as well. So looking at ways in bridging the digital divide and making um, mobile and internet accessible to all. I would say I've seen some examples of that happen in India under Prime Minister Modi launched this Jam, the Jandhan Aadhaar Mobile uh, and bank accounts for the unbanked. So that, as you know, is our first practice. And then going down to the local development finance practice, the municipal finance, sub-sovereign, I think this is a new area in the past Large amounts of money have been directed at the sovereign level and whether we can be closer to the problem, closer to the people at the sovereign level. And here I would come to the Swiss. I think the Swiss in their cantonal administration and the sort of a word called subsidization, sort of breaking it down really to the local level and local engagement of the communities and then financing at that level would be terrific for what we are doing. And lastly, the innovation in our LDC investment platform. I see a large scope. So for everything that we've talked about, I think we can look to develop that further along with the partnerships that you so ably lead and develop multiple funding structures in that across a range of products and the capital markets that we talked about briefly. So Preeti, I'm hearing you talk about inclusion, Building in externalities, taking a holistic view, leaving no one behind, focusing on the poorest, empathy. Is it a coincidence that all of these values and approaches that you're bringing come along with the fact that you are the second powerhouse woman executive secretary that we've had? I feel like these are topics that traditionally were not in the discourse of finance or development or government but are increasingly becoming part of the discourse. And I can't help thinking it's not a coincidence that it's as there are more numbers and more critical mass of female leaders and other maybe non-traditional leaders who are bringing these topics and approaches to traditional problems. So I would say my journey to date has been wonderful. As a woman, I would say it's had its challenges, um, which I've been able to find support for and overcome. But I would say that, yes, women are at the center of the family. Let's say from my origins, I saw my mother being at the center of the family. And that kind of inclusivity obviously accompanies you as you go through different organizations and institutions. I also believe that... um, People in power 
need to be more inclusive. You know, this whole discussion that we had about the externalities. So I would like to see more inclusion across those who hold power. And I think women in that sense, um, because they have had a past of caretaking, probably bring that inclusion to the role. I personally, you know, have been very pleased by the support I've received at the UN so far and the perspectives that I'm seeing, uh, particularly um, acknowledging the UNDP administrator, Akim Steiner, and the gender ratio balance that he's achieved in the resident representation and the kind of the leadership that he's bringing in to the UNDP. So I think going forward, I will remain always very supportive as well of younger women. I hope to, my story might be an inspiration and if I could um, mentor women, young women from time to time, I'd be very happy. Remember, I did go through Wall Street at that time of um, the 90s, which was a, a step better than my generation before me. But for example, in the post-MBA class of 40 associates, one of the organizations, there was only one woman. So one woman and 39 uh, male associates. But uh, at the same time, I would encourage women to gain competencies, be rigorous. So in a selection process, I would always also focus on the competencies and rigor of training and experiences that the candidates have gone through. So I'd like women to, you know, obviously adopt some of the STEM um, education that gives you that rigor. Be in the quantitative field as well if you're so oriented. And uh, just be very strong candidates, you know, build yourself up through your education and experience to do that. So I think uh, in answer to your question, Esther, it's uh, both sides. I see both sides evolving. Perhaps women, as we know, have evolved a bit faster. And now we are looking at the evolution of both genders and looking forward to this new world. As you know, I'm also very happy with the election of Vice President Kamala Harris and the second gentleman. And we'll look forward to that journey under the leadership of President Joe Biden and the First Lady, who's well, very supportive. And so looking forward to this administration as well. Well, we're very happy to see that the UN is taking action on diversifying senior leadership. There's increasingly evidence and reports coming out that having a diverse team leads to better decision-making. And for companies, that having diversity on boards and in leadership leads to better profitability. So we are hoping that that diversity of opinion and background and experience also bears fruit in the United Nations and other fields as well. So Preeti, we're thrilled to have you with us. Welcome aboard, and we will look forward to your continued success leading United Nations Capital Development Fund. Esther, thank you very much for having me here. Looking forward to further musings with you. And thanks to our audience for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.